the mind is blissful because I as the self create the mind. So the mind is blissful for when it subsides, right? So the essence of the mind is bliss. And that means that the essence of I, the essence of you, the essence of each being is bliss. And the goal, the challenge, the practice of the yogi is to access that bliss. So not to treat the mind and the world as separate, but to recognize that we need the tools to allow us to let it subside so that we can allow it to merge back into that ocean of bliss rather than the waves that overwhelm us or disturb us. Welcome to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to A Curious Yogi Podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. And before I get into today's pretty epic episode, I want to remind you, if you haven't done so already, to head over to bobbypadel.com and connect for many of the free resources I offer there, like an introduction to mantra, a guna's practice guide, and a free seven-day course to building your daily practice. Plus, be the first to know about my upcoming September Yoga Sadhana Europe retreat and news of the 2024 Himalayan retreat. Plus, I love to hear from you. So, today's brilliant conversation is an exploration of the lesser known and very profound Avdud Gita and satsang as well with a very special yogi and teacher sigla vistar breacher born in montreal now based in portugal vistar has lived and studied advaita philosophy and meditation for 30 years with swami sham at the international meditation institute in kulu northern india so today we focus on her translation of the text the abdud gita of datatre the song of the unborn it is a deep meditative exploration of a 9th century Advaita Vedanta text, a lyrical translation that conveys the direct experience of the unborn, the liberated one. Vistar studied Sanskrit philosophical texts in depth and was tutored by Dr. Stephen Thompson, tutor and reader of Sanskrit at Oxford. Drawing upon her philosophy, meditation, and Sanskrit studies, Vistar was inspired and intrigued by the dialogue of the sage Ashtavakar and King Janak found in the Ashtavakar Gita. This phenomenon of the philosopher king and its relevance in the 21st century landscape offers a unique vision into our collective universal journey. Vistar guides us through the profundity of the Avadut with clarity and relatability for the modern seeker with her total expertise. Taking some inspiration from Swami Sham's commentary on the text, we get into the real essence of the teaching. She similarly teaches Advait philosophy, meditation, chanting, and Indian classical music around the world. This is a super episode because I recorded this talk 
in my living room in a little mountain-style yogi house that has become my own sanctuary. And it's a house Vistar lived in for 17 years. So while this is our first intimate meeting, I feel a oneness with her incredible energy, and I hope you do too. So sit back and enjoy. All right. So welcome, Vistar, to a Curious Yogi podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's so amazing. I, you know, I give the introduction of your bio and everything after we record the conversation, but I will just start by appreciating you. You're such an inspiring yogi, and I've watched you from afar for the last 10 years since I've been coming to Kulu, and so I'm just so honored to spend some time with you, and I just love the Avadut, inspired by you. So I'm so excited for this conversation and just really lots of love and appreciation for you to start. Oh, you're so fabulous. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate you too. And also it was from afar, uh, the glimpses of when you would come. And uh, But I always appreciated the connection. So it's great. And I always appreciate anyone who appreciates Avadut. So we already have... Uh, a common language. Mm -hmm. So I always like to start by giving the listeners a little glimpse into how someone such as yourself, you know, I know you're originally from Montreal, you lived in India for 20 plus years. Now you live in Portugal, you've lived this extraordinary life from the external. And yet so much of it you've devoted to the study of Advait Vedant, yoga, Indian classical music. Like, in a, in a summary, how did you get here? How did you come into this path? Well, um, I'll, I'll try and be as succinct as possible. Um, I was born in Montreal, and I was born uh, to uh, a family of travelers. My father was an academic, and his field was India, actually. So I actually arrived in India when I was four. Uh, for a year. So I think that taste for India uh, lingered. Um, but to be really clear, I think that from a very young age, from my early teens, I had a very intense desire for freedom. I didn't always know how to define it, but I knew it. I knew there was something that the world was not giving me. And you know, I grew up in, in an environment with enormous freedom, a liberal intellectual background. I could read anything, study anything. I traveled a lot, but nothing really seemed to fulfill um, a really instinctive quest. And when I was about 18, um, I saw, I had met some Shams in Montreal, uh, Gyan was one of them, as you know of her. And they had a book, uh, Swamiji's book, Patanjali Yogadarsha. And on the back of it, it said, freedom is your own true nature. You must get it. And I felt like a light bulb got turned on. It was everything that my inner being was searching for. And I knew somewhere out there, there was someone that knew something. Um, and even before that, I'd already started reading um, different um, Indian philosophers and gurus. 
like Baba Ramdas, uh, Nimkaroli Baba, etc. But somehow when I read that, something really clicked. And anyway, a few years later, uh, I came to meet Swamiji in my early 20s. And I was still in school, in music school. And um, a few years later, I moved to Kulu, um, you know, and those things are kind of inexplicable. It wasn't like a plan from birth. I never really imagined myself. I ended up living in Kulu for nearly 35 years. Yeah. And <laughs> it really wasn't what I thought or necessarily envisioned, but I did know that when I met Swamiji and I was really initiated into meditation, that something very um, fundamental inside my inner being responded and said, yes, this is um, what I've been looking for. Um, now, it doesn't mean to say that it was, you know, oh, in that moment, I knew everything. Then for me, the sadhana, the practice began um, of really kind of, you know, studying and meditating and listening to Swamiji and asking innumerable questions. Um, and really being in the company of uh, a realized being. And for me, I think that's, you know, Swamiji used to say that everyone who comes in front of him is realized because that very freedom that they recognize in their own, in him, is in their own being because you recognize something that's already within you. Um, and that was and is really his vision of oneness. So that just um, inspired me in a way that I would say that nothing else really did before. So I guess you could say I devoted my life to that and continue to. And it's, um, it's really been an unfoldment of bliss um, that I can really say today. I don't know if I would have always said it. I think that there's many um, twists and turns that you take in, in a journey of self-inquiry. And when you come to uh, confront your inner conditionings and all of those things, and that is part of the practice. But I think at the essence of it was always, this was the only thing that made sense to me. Mm. And that was really the fundamental driving force of my life. This is what makes sense. This is what really speaks to me. So that was kind of, in a nutshell, how I came to be a devotee of Swamiji and living in Kulu for many years. And I would say also a master yogi yourself to devote so much time and energy to something that, you know, the whole world, especially growing up in Canada and I guess you know you had an interesting background because I know you had such different parents but like the whole world just reflects this different kind of priority onto a human being and yet Absolutely. there's these few rare jewels somehow that have like that you said that desire for freedom which I can totally relate to that's that just is so ready and it's so ready and then when we find that teacher when for both of us it was Swamiji that just it's like the match and it's just like yes I could totally relate to what you were saying exactly exactly and I think that that's um 
you know, especially these days as a teacher, and I encounter here in Portugal, many young people, and in this area, there are a lot of young, you know, free spirits um, that are searching. And I, I really recognize how privileged I've been to actually at a young age, find someone that I can learn from. I don't think that's um, a given. And I think it's, uh, I really, I always appreciate it. But I think now when I encounter so many people searching, that recognition of that privilege is, is heightened even more so. I can relate to that. And I also see like last year, Simon and I were in Rishikesh and we saw so many people that, and met so many people that are so sincerely seeking and searching. Yes. But there's so much fluff, you know, that, people have to discern through in a way that I never had to. And I also feel how lucky that I got to just somehow be put in front of my teacher and I didn't have anything else to have to consider. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's so interesting too, when you were saying that you, you know, you sat in front of Swamiji, a realized being, and you asked so many questions. And I always think it's interesting too, especially for someone like yourself, that's been, practicing your sadhana for so many years have you found that there has been like a kind of reoccurring theme if you will that's come up for you in your sadhana that's a that's actually a great question because I, I would say two things about that first of all absolutely and I think that if you know while I observe this whole kind of period of time since I met Swamiji till today or till you know, when I stopped asking questions, I think fundamentally I always had the same question and that's what I've observed, which is fantastic actually. It was how to live that freedom that I knew existed. And, you know, the, the great thing about living in a community uh, in Kulu and the way Swamiji set it up that we all got to witness each other's questions and each other's um specific kind of um, areas where we really needed kind of an answer. And I came to see that everyone had their way and their their kind of, I wouldn't even say a repetition, repetition of a question, but really just um, that was where their sense of release needed to come from. So for some people, it was how to dissolve the mind. For some people, it was how to achieve bliss. But, you know, everyone had their way. But for myself, I would definitely say that even though the questions changed and the nuances of Swamiji's answers changed, the question really always was, how do I live the freedom that I know is my nature? And of course, through those questions, I had to examine who that I I was talking about. It wasn't I, this body. It was that I that is unchanging. And that's the I that actually lives the state of freedom. So in order to actually answer all my questions, Swamiji really had to guide me through his teachings and answers, and of course, through the practice of sadhana to understand my own mechanism 
and even I would say most importantly is to have the direct experience of freedom. So, and this is what they call in Sanskrit anubhav, and in English they translate it as intuitive experience. Swamiji used to call it direct experience. So it, it's really that it's, you're not talking about something with your intellect, it's not a concept, it's not the words freedom or liberation, it's actually that experience, that inner experience of freedom um, or bliss or self, whatever that, however you define it for yourself, the inner being wants that release and to know itself. Um, and I think that ultimately that's what the practice is, whether it's the meditation, the singing of Abdut, the listening to Swamiji, the discussions, the studies, it's all to open a portal, a gate to that state of intuitive experience. Mm. And that's the, that's, that's the truth that's unchanging. Uh, everything else, you know, we all know the minds and the opinions and the information, it changes. Um, now, having said that, I would say that, for example, like in Shankaracharya's Vivek Chundamani, Night of Light of Knowledge, he says right at the beginning, for the early stages of sadhana, you need to kind of disentangle what you would call, let's say, duality or oneness, or that which serves your practice as a meditator or that which takes you away from it. But it's only as an exercise to evolve a kind of discrimination for your practice when in actual reality, it really is all oneness. And I remember that really struck a very powerful chord because it's very easy on a spiritual path to say good, bad, liberation, bondage, um, right, wrong, sin, virtue. And I think this is leading me straight into Abdut Gita because I started reading Abdut Gita, I would say like about 15 years ago. At the, a friend of mine in Kulu who knew kind of my, my penchant for more abstract esoteric texts gave it to me and said you really like this and that was the the beauty of of the Abdut Gita is that it really it describes all the pairs of opposites of the human condition and transcends them and and also what I would add to that is that and this I've really discovered in recent years as I teach of Gita more and more is that I think it's also very much a text for people who are already engaged in self-inquiry. Because it re because to go back to what I just said, you do have to at the beginning understand what is going to serve you as a spiritual practitioner and what isn't and what is good for your practice and what isn't. Um, but the Abdut Gita takes you beyond all of it. And, and I think that's a really important point. So, you know, when, when you open the Abdut Gita and you read a line saying there's no liberation, no bondage, you're like, whoa. But, you know, as a, as a seeker, I would always think, well, I'm, I'm for liberation, 
right? I'm for freedom. So what does that mean? There's no liberation or where the self is free from both liberation and bondage. And, and that's why I think it's a very, very unique text because, you know, uh, uh, Abdul Dattatre will, will, will give you all the pairs of opposites and then will declare, Aham Eva Shivaha Param Artha Iti. I am that bliss, the supreme highest truth, the self. So that is his conclusion. That is where he will lead the attention. So for me, in, in a certain way, I would say that the Abdut Gita is a direct experience text. It, it, it kind of um, short circuits your intellect in a certain way and goes, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this. And, and with beautiful poetry, I'll just say this about the Abdut Gita, that it was supposedly written in the 9th, 10th century common era, written by the sage Datatre, but the, the imagery that I love about it is that they say that he would wander around the hills of Mysore singing this. Now it's a Gita, Avdut Gita, so it's the Gita, the song of the Avdut. And Avdut actually means the one who is free from the shackles of the world. And I think that the, for me, the real beauty of that is not that you say, okay, the world is over there and I'm gonna go into my cave and so I'll become free of it. The freedom is to know that there's only the self. There's no separation. There's no world that exists separate from me. It is all that self. And so, to be free of the shackles of the world is to be free from all those pairs of opposites that define us. And I think not only do they define us, they bind us. I'm this, or I'm that. Or if I'm this, then I can't be that. And not only that, if I think this and you think differently, then how do we meet? Where, where is that meeting? And the meeting is beyond the level of mind, body, intellect. The meeting is in the direct experience of the space. Mm, beautiful. Wow. Nice intro to the Avatut Gita. <laughs> just, uh, I'm already spaced out. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's so beautiful. And I, I love how you led into it talking about light of knowledge and how it is kind of like an evolution and that because I'm just like putting myself into the ears of the listeners and thinking, you know, it's so easy for one, a yoga practitioner, a meditator, someone that's on a spiritual exploration to get so bound in the pairs of opposites so much, like, even though that's the one thing we want to be free of, and yet to be a good yogi, yes. and then to be sattvic and all these things that then somehow we've created our own imaginary cage when we're just wanting to be free and just the power of having a scripture like this, like a resource to just open it up and read one verse and it dissolves all the sense of separateness. Yes. And yes, I think it's like, for me, I've only started reading it in the last few weeks since I knew we were going to meet. And I'm so like attracted to it because it's also 
it's so blown and so beautiful like you said the poetry but it's just like it goes it pierces right through the illusion it pierces right through the intellect and really hits the center exactly exactly and and that's i think the greatest inspiration of any text any teaching any communication is when it pierces into that kind of quintessential truth or experience where the being goes yes this speaks to me and 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 it's not speaking to me because my intellect necessarily agrees or even understands it but something goes responds to it uh, on a on the subtlest level and um which doesn't mean to say that the intellect doesn't work of course we need the intellect and and we use it and we engage with it to understand and to express an even deeper understanding. Um, but it always takes us to that place, which is even beyond that. And, and that's, I think, the beauty. And the truth is, I think that's the, that's the purpose of all spiritual texts is to take you to the experience. It's great to understand, and I think it's also very important to understand what happens to us as spiritual practitioners, as yogis who are doing sadhana. We, we do want to understand our, our inner mechanism, and we need to observe and self-inquiry. All of that is so important. And I think also it is important to know what serves our practice and what doesn't what engages us deeper and what distracts us, what purifies our intellect and what covers it or distracts it or overwhelms it. I think, and you know, and I think in that sense, the great sages and yogis knew what was necessary. And so they devised systems for, for the body like yoga and subtler and subtler and subtler. And I think that's why this text is so interesting because it's taking you from the place where you're already understanding your inner mechanism and it's taking you even further. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's, I think it's very inspiring because even though sometimes we don't always understand what we read, if it speak to us, speaks to us even in a in, in like in a minute, in a second, in in a word, and some, suddenly something gets lit, it also inspires us and challenges us to understand more. So when I first started reading Abdul Gita, I wanted to read something very brief because this was the first verse I read of Abdul Gita. It's in chapter six, verse three. When the world is seen, this seeing is dependent on the mind. Therefore, the mind alone is permeating the world. And this is the part that I thought was really fascinating. If you say the world is infinite or finite, it is the mind that is infinite or finite. The mind is blissful, for when it subsides, peace or bliss is felt and the world exists no more. When this is the condition of the mind, what will be the condition of the self? Now, I found this fascinating because 
you know, by the time I read this, as I said, it was about 10, 15 years ago. So I'd already been a yogi for many years. And a lot of what I had engaged in was the study of mind in the sense of how my intellect functioned, how my emotional intellect functioned, where it distracted me, where it disturbed me. When I woke up in the morning, did it create joy? Did it create suffering? Um, did it confuse me? Did it cover um, my understanding? All of those things were part of a process of self-inquiry. I never thought that the mind was blissful, ever. Uh, I, I thought that the mind was there to be controlled, managed, understood, um, but also negated in a certain way, pushed away. Um, and again, this is going back to the what I introduced at the beginning. I think that is a tool at the beginning because when we first sit down to close our eyes and we're kind of engulfed with the million thoughts that you know, parade, you know, in our, in our inner world, we need to, to start initiating the existence that can watch the thoughts and that can watch the mind, I think. And then more than that, can see what serves, what kind of thoughts serve you, which is where we introduce mantra. If you can start repeating a thought and a concept and a word with a vibration um, that that is subtle, then that will allow us access to a meditative state. Now that's all wonderful, but where in that does the mind become bliss? And I think what was so important for me in this verse when I read it originally and when I reread it over the years is that I understand that the mind is blissful because I, as the self, create the mind. So the mind is blissful for when it subsides, right? So the essence of the mind is bliss. And that means that the essence of I, the essence of you, the essence of each being is bliss. And the goal, the challenge, the practice of the yogi is to access that bliss. So not to treat the minds and the world as separate, but to recognize that we need the tools to allow us to let it subside so that we can allow it to merge back into that ocean of bliss rather than the waves that overwhelm us or disturb us. Mm. When you were speaking, I was thinking about for me, somehow, the last, I don't know, two years, I've kind of been obsessed with thinking about peace and kind of like what you were saying, how do I live freedom that I know is there? For me, it's the same essence, but it's a different word. And I'm kind of starting to see, and even as you're speaking, that like I'm never going to reach the state of peace with my mind, which is what creates the duality or the conflict but it's hard to, for the mind to grasp that, you know? So to have some kind of a pointer or a knowledge, like you so beautifully said, that points to the essence where then the mind can kind of relax into itself and then the piece is kind mm -hmm. of unfolded. I don't know if that makes sense. 
It does. It absolutely makes sense. And I think that the peace is always there. And that's, and that's why this verse was so powerful for me. And it's exactly what you're saying. Now, part of the sadhana is to know how to purify that mind, to allow it to become easy and to rest into its kind of original state. Um, and, and it can be done. And I think that was, you know, the greatest thing for me to meet Swamiji is that I saw a living human being, not a book, not a text, that did it. So for me, that was the inspiration to realize, yes, this can be done. And, and I would also say that, you know, after many, many years of practice and watching my mind go through all its various <laughs> permutations and challenges, sometimes easier, sometimes more turbulent, you know, all of the above, it just doesn't have the same meaning anymore. And I think that's really the beauty of practice, of that groove that keeps kind of that repetition that you kind of go, oh yeah, so this morning I woke up with this turbulent happening in my system. And another morning I wake up and I think, oh, this is fabulous. Of course, I prefer the fabulous. Of course, we all prefer that, that joyful sense rather than the pain. And exactly in Abdut, there's no sorrow, there's no joy. So someone inside you going, what do you mean? Of course, I experience both sorrow and joy. But again, Datatre is bringing our attention back to that ocean of consciousness that is not engulfed with sorrow and joy. So I think it's not that you stop experiencing all the vicissitudes of the mental condition and emotional condition, but I think what changes, and I hope this kind of is a response to what you were talking about, is that we become adept, and I think that's the practice of knowing how to access the bliss, mm. even while the mind goes on. And the mind will always be there. Now, of course, you know, there is a kind of purification of the mind and there is a, there is a way to channel it into positive and spiritual um, grooves, for sure. There is, and there's a great benefit to that. But I think ultimately, the greatest practice is to always have access to the bliss mm. so to have access to the bliss like i guess this also kind of extends on what you're saying but like you know we experience the bliss with our eyes closed in meditation like it's so clear that peace that i seek is there and then yet i open Absolutely. my eyes and there is a kind of a resonance or like an aftertaste of the meditation sure. and yet inevitably the world wants to pull me back into its whole drama yes and i think that that's really an interesting point which i think all your listeners and i myself definitely relate to because as you say when we meditate um that experience of peace is is right there 
and accessible. And when we open the eyes and all the information of the world, of what we think of the world, um, comes flooding in, what do we do with it? And that's why this is so be beautiful because we're thinking that the world is separate from us. Mm. So in a certain way, we become as if victims of the world, of all the information and all the people and all the emotions and all the interactions. And I think that is really the essence of the practice is when you know with utter certainty that there is no separation between you, the pure free being and the world. Mm -hmm then who's coming at you? It's your own self. It is, you know, and that's why I always love that image of the ocean and the wave. When we see the ocean with the waves, we never think the waves are separate, never. We just see that beautiful flow and we love them and, oh, are there great waves or, or disturbing? Or, but they're all beautiful and they're all water. They're all essence, they're all ocean. It's only, when we treat them as separate, then there's the sense of being overwhelmed or pulled or delighted or feared. All of the, all of the full range of emotion um, that comes when we think that the world is real and separate from us. Um, and I think that the important thing is, is and, and this is a point that I'd like to bring in here is, that access to peace is that access to that unchanging state. Mm -hmm. So we can call it peace, we can call it self, we can call it the unchanging. And every many traditions have many different names for it, but we know that we're describing an inner state. Now, when we open our eyes and we perceive the world, we see it as changing. And so we get immersed in its changing nature. But if we're able to establish ourselves in that unchanging, and we see that, that, that essence of all those waves that come towards us, whether in our mind or in the actual physical material world, are in their essence unchanging, then where's the separation? then it's just ocean consciousness. It's only when we treat it as separate that I think that the fear and the uneasiness and the, um, the sense of losing access to that state of peace comes. So even that image of when we open the eyes as if something's different, something's changed. And I think that's the real challenge for, for a yogi is to know that that unchanging bliss that we experience when we close our eyes, is it only dependent on closing the eyes and opening the eyes? No. So then you transpose it so that it becomes only that is the reality. And that's the, that's the life's work. Um, it's not easy. And yet in the blink of an eye. So I think that the real thing is, is that in each moment, that we experience that state of bliss or mind subsided into bliss 
or knowing that unchanging nature, we're right there. We don't have to worry about in a month from now or in a week or tomorrow morning if we wake up. When we wake up and if something comes, we just know it as the waves of our own self, delighting us in their in their dance. Yeah, when you're I love also the analogy of the wave and the ocean because it when I can remember that it does feel more like a dance or like a play where it's and I'm just a part of and parcel of the whole thing and it's not me it's not gripping to have that kind of yes like I love the visualization of the what happens before a volcano erupts like a tectonic shift underneath the ground that's so subtle but yet it can change the whole it can open the whole yes. view beautiful yeah exactly and so our our access to that meditative state is that change in the volcano that shifts our whole view and it's possible we're doing it can you read that verse again the last part of that verse i absolutely can okay when the world is seen that seeing is dependent on the mind okay so when we wake up in the morning and that sense of the world, and, and here we'll call the world actually even before we open our eyes, but when we wake up and that all those thoughts and emotions and memories and future projections come flooding in, we all have them, right? That seeing is dependent on the mind, right? That functioning of the mind, and that's fine. Therefore, the mind alone is permeating the world. Without that vehicle of the mind, where's the world? If you say the world is infinite or finite, it is the mind. Okay, so it's the mind that's defining it. It's that very vehicle of the mind. Sorry, I'm giving um <laughs> interpretation. No, this is perfect. I'm loving here. it. It's really good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The mind is blissful. Okay, so this is where, and I, I even looking at my original book, which is kind of in tatters now, unfortunately, but I underlined it because it was so challenging for me and inspiring. The mind is blissful. Just that line. Who amongst us would wake up in the morning and go, the mind is blissful? Not an easy statement, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that for a human being, even when they wake up in the morning delighted and excited and all their preferences are met inside, there's a sense it can change because we're all aware of the nature of the changing field. So even when there's joy and happiness, contained within it is the fear of change. So where is the mind blissful in that? Here, Abdu'l-Dhatatre and Swamiji in his commentary saying, the mind is blissful, for when it subsides, peace or bliss is felt, and the world exists no more. So when it subsides, and I think for me that was the, the unlocking, and it still reverberates till today, of my... Um, goal or my where my attention is in terms of my own practice the mind subsiding 
So now look, that's the goal of meditators, right? Is that the mind will subside. But, and so we use all the techniques and whether it's breathing in pranayama or whether it's chanting with mantra or whether it's listening to Swamiji or other teachers speak or whatever the techniques have been used to allow the mind to subside. But what I love here is that the mind subsides into its own nature. Mm -hmm. So, and when it subsides into its own nature and you know that its very nature is bliss, then who's creating the world? Who's creating all that mental agitation that comes? It's that own, your own creative intelligence, you can call it life, you can call it pure consciousness, that is moving through us that creates it so it, when we know that we're the ocean that are creating the waves enjoy the waves yeah. but we also know that we do have if you want to call it power or intent or focus and i think that's where sadhana practice is so important um is that we do have the ability to allow the mind to subside. Because when the mind subsides, bliss is felt. Mm -hmm. and, but I think that the really crucial thing for me here in this verse in particular is that own the mind as your own blissful self. Don't push it away. And, and, and I think that the very act of pushing it away also makes it more real and more powerful. Rather, if you own it as your own self, then you can really declare, I am that bliss, that supreme self, because I know that all these pairs of opposites exist, and all the form and phenomena have been experienced by human beings for millennia. But I also know that I, as the self, unchanging, which we experience in those kind of exquisite moments where the mind subsides, is there, it's right there for us to access. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember many, many years ago when I was asking one of my, whatever, one of my many, many questions to Swamiji, and I was, it, it was a particularly challenging time. And I remember he looked at me and he said, you're right at the portal. Just walk through. And, and, and that imagery really resonated for me and still does today. And I'm aware that you and I, and I think anyone who wants to engage in self-inquiry has access to that portal at some point in their life. And it's really our choice. And I think that's where the choice of the yogi is, is to say, yes, I wanna walk through. Even if my conditions, uh, and I mean my kind of our emotional, mental, social conditions can cover it sometimes or can make it seem like a fearful journey. Um, but there's that intense desire for liberation, mukshatwa, that says, no, I want to walk through that portal because I know that when I walk through, 
I will have access to that state of unchanging, which is my own true nature. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I know I want. And I think <laughs> I could say that you oh, want yeah, as well. Yeah, I definitely want it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you were speaking to, I was thinking of this funny thing. One, maybe I heard it from a yoga teacher or something. I said, whatever you resist persists. And like, I just love that sweetness and that um, image of sort of embracing our mind. And even in Avadut, like there's a few verses where he's saying, oh, dear mind, like, so even in saying yes. you're not your emotions, you're not this, you're not that, you're not that, you're not this. At the same time, there's this sort of gentleness that's saying, oh, dear mind. Or, and then also like, why, yes. why do you weep? You know, the, so there's still a kind of like exactly. dignity for this whole. Yes. Meaning, which then it it's like it's so much sweeter somehow. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a really beautiful point you brought up because th there is that dignity and there's that gentleness that we can address our own system and our own mechanism of mind or um, turbulence or um, chaos or however it appears for us. And you're right. It's like, you know, it, I think it's in chapter four. He goes, you know, dear mind, why do you weep? And then he goes on to give the whole list of that the self is free from all of these pairs of opposites. So why do you weep? And, you know, in another chapter, one of my favorites, again, <laughs> he'll go, I think it's chapter five, I'm not sure. I am free from the disease of thinking I am this or I am that. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and, you know, one of the, the lyrical beauties of Abdut Gita is that in many of the chapters there's eight chapters um, and I would say at least in half if not more they have sections of the chapter that in the third or fourth line of each verse the line repeats it's like a leitmotif that that repeats um, through the chapter so one of them is as you said you know um, Dear mind, why do you weep? Uh, another one which I love is Gyanamritam Samalasam Gaganopamoham. And this is um, an imagery that Avdutatatre uses a lot. Gyanamritam, I am the knowledge of bliss existence like the sky. Gagano, Gagan is the sky. Gaganopamoham, aham, I am like the sky. And he uses that imagery a lot because if you think about it, it's the, the sky as an imagery can contain all of it. Um, where will you start dividing uh, your opinions and thoughts and preferences in the sky when it contains all of that? So Gyanamritam, the knowledge of immortality is like the sky like I am like the sky that bliss existence like the sky um, so you're right I think that the beauty of Avdut Gita is it really gently um, pulls the reader to participate in that love 
for the mind and love for the channel um, challenge and love for the for the journey. There's nothing separate in it. Now we're all yogis that are wandering around in whatever mountains or cities or paths or groves. Here I'm in cork forests in Portugal, singing the nature of the human condition and always knowing that I can resolve it by echoing my awareness that the self is free from any condition. Yeah, I love the visualization of the sky because too, sky doesn't say that's a, a ugly bird, that's a beautiful bird, that's an annoying cloud. It's just all sky. <laughs> and yet, like, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of entertaining then to see how the mind fluctuates and the mind goes back and forth. And I, I read one where, somewhere too once, I read an article that some science paper that said, human beings like or all this all the subjects of the study it was like 90 percent of the thoughts that go through a human being's head are negative or critical and to just like to yes. like you said so beautifully have the text or the guru or the teacher or whatever it is that reflects and helps us purify that mind nature just ever so slightly into that which delights us and attracts us to know or see or reflect that vision of the sky or the ocean that all I I resonate with that vastness and why do I resonate because it's my own self it's so because it's me I know (laughs) it's so simple and and it's really interesting that you said that about the critical intellect because I um I have been a victim of the critical intellect partially it was my upbringing um, and, and that's fine. And, and, and I think it actually took me a while to realize that I even had a critical intellect. I was so one with my intellect that whatever I thought was what I thought. And it, it, it took me quite a while to kind of go, oh, actually, I actually have a critical intellect. And it's, in, it's, um, it's a barrier to the state of bliss. Whereas now, I would say that the critical intellect just serves me as a tool. And that's the thing. It's not that we throw away things or we negate things and we go, you don't need intelligence. You don't need intellect. You don't even need critical. Critical intellect is great if it allows me to read a text, translate it, understand it, ponder it, contemplate it, see where it inspires me. Um, communicated intellect is wonderful but when it engulfs us or we don't even go this is what I'm thinking it doesn't mean it's true I can be free from thinking I am this or I am that and even from my own thinking by watching and that's you know the whole field of meditation and self-inquiry etc so the critical intellect is wonderful if it serves you the emotions are wonderful if it serves you the ego is wonderful if it serves you i need to eat i need to you know exist in this body it's fine 
doesn't mean that ego is bad. It, I think all of those things are wonderful and are there to serve us. It's only when they create division and bondage that it impedes us on our journey. That's how I would um, define them. I'd love if you could read us a, one or two more verses that you are particularly Absolutely. drawn to, either in your translation or Swamiji's. Um, well, this is a really nice verse. <laughs> So this is in chapter 7, verse 9. I'm reading from my translation. The yogi is free from unity and disunity, experience and no experience. The yogi roams in all imaginary worlds, having realized pure consciousness, pure bliss. And I think... Um, what is really wonderful in this is that once again, so yoga viyoga reheto yogi, so the yogi is free from both yoga and lack of yoga. Bhoga vibhoga reheto bhogi, the enjoyer, the experiencer is free from reheto bhoga, the enjoyer, experiencer, and the lack of. Evam charatihi mandam mandam. So they wander slowly, slowly. Manasa kalpita seheja nandam. In every direction, and this is Swamiji's, and at every place, that yogi finds Atmanand, the bliss of the Absolute. Now, what drew me to this is that, again, it's free from both unity and disunity. Now, you would think, the yogi, the practitioner, yoke, even the very meaning of yoke is yoke, to, to unify, right? You'd go, well, what do you mean free from both unity and disunity? Or from experience and non-experience? Because the, the, the linear intellectual thinking will go, as a yogi, I'll be for unity, and I'll be for being beyond the shackles of experience. And Abdut is going, no, the self, the real yogi, the ultimate yogi is free from both of those. Because the thing is, the minute you define yourself as one or the other, you bound yourself into a concept. And that's why I'll refer back to when I said this is really a text for the spiritual aspirant, because it's also blowing the concepts of the spirituality because it's very easy, and, and I have been part of that as well, to think, well, I'm a yogi, so I will act like this, and I will practice, practice like this. And you develop a whole field of spiritual concepts, because that's what human beings do. They build concepts. That's the nature of the mind, body, intellect. And this is what's so powerful about this, is that only when you can actually, the real yogi becomes free from both union and disunion and enjoying and not enjoying, can they actually wander through all the world in the state of bliss and find bliss everywhere. Because when you're beyond confining yourself 
and define yourself as a mind, body, intellect, then you really experience the state of bliss. Hmm. I love that. I also had that one highlighted and pinned over. Yeah. Did you? <laughs> no, it's so beautiful. <laughs> because I also love that, like exactly how you just described it and broke it down that only once that yogi is free, then the yogi roams freely through the imagination, through the place, through the waves, through the mind. And like, yeah, and I, I just love that. And I also love the last line there, like pure bliss. And that is just purity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because when you're free from thinking you are this or that, then you can really wander everywhere and everything that you perceive and experience is your own self bliss. Mm. It's only when you think I am this yogi or I am free from being yogi. It's those pairs of opposites again, it's that play. Um, And I think that for me personally, that's the greatest inspiration is to be free from thinking I'm anything. Mm. I'm a yogi, I'm not a yogi, I'm just pure bliss. Yeah, and also it feels like I get the sense when we watch and observe and speak in this way, it reminds me like bliss is not conditional. Like there's nothing I have to do to arrive at bliss. Just like Swami said to you, like you just walk through the door. It's open for each and every being and yes like it's yes. just it's like <laughs> I don't know I think that's and and I think that's a wonderful point that you just made that bliss is not conditional the minute you put a condition on bliss it's no longer bliss because it's conditioned on the changing field um so in this case whether you're a yogi or you're not a yogi or you're experiencing something or you're not but the minute you're just bliss, that's where the freedom is. Mm-hmm. And that's real bliss. Otherwise, it's just happiness or unhappiness. It's all um, predetermined and conditioned by situation uh, and changing situations. So I think that was a really good point mm-hmm. that you it's great. Well, maybe we should finish with one last verse. It's so inspiring. Okay. Uh, okay. Take one last verse for us to encom- just wrap our beautiful conversation up. Okay. Ah, okay. I like this one. I'm going to read both of them. So just give me a second. Okay. This is verse four in chapter seven. Katam maham ehadeha videha vicharaha, katam meha draga viraga vicharaha, nirmal nishchala gaganakaram, soyam aham ehatatvam sehajakaram. How can the abdut who has attained the state of jivan mukti or liberation? entertain the thought that they have a body or no body. In their vision, there cannot be any sense that they have rag or love for this thing or person, or no love or attachment for that thing or person. They are pure, unmoved, 
established and all permeating like a kosh. By their own nature or truth, they are brahmatva, the form of formlessness. In other words, they remain easy, which I thought was really mm -hmm. nice. Um, and um, in mine, how can the free being contemplate the body or the bodiless state, attachment, love, or detachment? The free being's essential nature is pure, untouched, like the sky, like the sky. So I think this is really the kind of um, the imagery um, that speaks to me is that how do we remain free? So it's not that we we don't experience love or human emotion, but how can the human being, how can the free being contemplate the body or the bodiless state? Because the thing is, all of those emotions that we experience, and they're all wonderful, or most of them are wonderful, some are less wonderful, but they all belong to the body. And when I say body, I mean the mind, body, intellect, that vehicle that changes. How many times have we loved and it changed? How many times did we suddenly not love? And then that changed and everything in between. So again, um, when Swamiji says here, they are pure, unmoved, established, and all permeating like a kosh. By their own nature or truth, they are brahmatatwa, the form of formlessness. So it's really tuning into your own nature before we called it bliss. Now we can call it formlessness because the real challenge I think of the yogi is that we have a body that is subject to change with all its glory and all its imperfections. Um, and our challenge and aim as yogis is to be immersed in that form of formlessness, which is a beautiful kind of imagery, is like how to be in that state of formless. And it's not that we don't love, we love even more because we're loving the being that's not changing. And I think that's the real shift in awareness is that we come to experience life in that pure state of unchanging. That is, the, that is the challenge and that is the freedom. And I think that's where the freedom really lies is to know ourselves as the formless free being. And then I love the last line that he says, in other words, they remain easy. 
and that's it. exactly <laughs> that's it because where does the unease come the unease comes from all the you know the the waves the crashing waves of mental and emotional change and yet when we're tuned into that formless state then we can remain easy and i think that that is the greatness of the spiritual journey is that we can and do live that space it's right there i love it well we def you definitely took me and the listeners i'm sure for a dip in that form of the formlessness just by tapping into the avidud gita and to your wisdom and your knowledge and just one last question i love to ask the guests at the end of the episode to leave the listeners and myself included selfishly this is a very selfish project it's actually just for me and my sadhana but instead of leaving us with a point of wisdom leave us with a point of inquiry something we can question and uncover for ourselves in our practice i think that for me as a as a yogi the greatest practice is to watch when i think i'm a wave when i experience separateness and to be very mindful of that phenomena so in each of us i think there are moments in our days where something comes to challenge us to overwhelm us and i think that the the greatest challenge for a yogi is to watch what happens and when that wave comes let's develop that alertness and when the wave comes to try and and remember i am that bliss from where the wave came beautiful that's my personal sadhana and um i'm happy to share it well thank you so much vistar i'll definitely put a link in the show notes to your website if people want to get in touch with you and obviously buy the the book it's such a beautiful translation i know you worked so hard and it's like an incredible work to translate the sanskrit and i'm sure that was like a whole sadhana in itself yes. <laughs> yeah so thank you so much i really just lots of love and appreciation for your brilliance thank you darling your sweetheart and it's really been a joy thanks for listening to this episode if you enjoyed what you heard please leave a review it really helps the show reach more people if you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show send them to me through social or email and don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms let's stay curious connected and keep walking the path together music graciously offered by heidi herdia groschler in oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.